Our text this morning comes from Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. So if you have your Bibles and would like to open, it's on page 201 of my Bible. I realize it doesn't do you any good. Um, It's also printed in our bulletin. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the Lord's word to us. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his, his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt and their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word to us, and we pray that you would open it up to us. Open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word, that you might be glorified, that we might know you better, and that we might grow more in love with you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm excited to be with you this morning. And I felt like I need to tell you that because you might be thinking, then why did you pick such a depressing text to kick this whole thing off? (laughs) Well, this summer we're going to be studying the book of Judges. And um, 
as you've had a taste of it now, that might seem a strange choice to you, and, and it might seem strange for a couple of different reasons. Um, maybe for you, maybe you're somebody who's not familiar with the book of Judges at all. Maybe you're not very familiar with the Old Testament either. And you think, why, um, why, why study this? Why spend much time even in the Old Testament? Um, why spend time in an obscure book like Judges? It's, it's a little like cleaning out your attic and you come across that old stack of newspapers from years ago and you start to read them and, and there might be some historical value to that, there might be some interest, but it's old news, right? Um, it just seems so distant and in the past, uh, no longer relevant. And maybe the whole Old Testament actually feels this way to you. After all, uh, we have the New Testament, right? I mean, it's in the New Testament when we start to get the good stuff. Um, it's in the New Testament that we start to get Jesus. Or, maybe studying the book of Judges seems like a strange pick to you, not because you're unfamiliar with it, but because you're, you, you are familiar with it. Maybe it seems a strange pick because you know what happens in this book. Um, you're familiar with um, all the crazy, even the disturbing events that take place in the book of Judges. In fact, the book of Judges for you might be a case in point of why you won't tell your friends to pick up the Bible and read it because you're scared they're going to open up to something like this. Or maybe it's one of the reasons that you're scared to pick up the Bible because you'll open it to something like this and, and you don't know what to do with it. Uh, the book of Judges is full of violence and it's full of infidelity and rebellion. And Maybe you know that. Maybe you know about Ehud, one of the characters of Judges, who delivers God's people through a political assassination Maybe you know about Gideon, who keeps testing the Lord time and again through his lack of faith. Maybe you know about Jephthah, a mercenary who leads God's people for his own glory, and in the end, ends up offering up his daughter as a human sacrifice. Or Samson, who squanders the gifts that God gives him in a life of uh, philandering and pleasure. He does all this rather than faithfully following the God who called him. Or even worse, maybe you've read the last couple chapters of Judges, um, which talk about the brutal death of a woman who suffers uh, under a patriarchal society that at its worst has no regard for the value of women. And frankly, you think the book of Judges is offensive. So whether you're familiar with Judges or not, the question comes up, why are we going to spend our summer reading and thinking and talking about the book of Judges? Why are we going to spend time in these old stories? And that's really just the same as asking the question, why is this book in the Bible to begin with? Why did God give this to us? What does he have for us here? Why is this important for us? And the answer is that the book of Judges, just like all of the New Testament, and just like all of the Old Testament, it's about the gospel. It's about the good news of a loving God who seeks out his people, who rescues them, who pursues us, all of which finds its ultimate culmination in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is a book-long story of God pursuing his people, and Judges fits in as part of that story. So in fact, here's the the main idea we're going to keep coming back to time and again this summer as we look at Judges. Um, I stole this phrase from an RUF campus minister. I don't know where he stole it, but here it is. Here's the point of the book of Judges. The greatness of God's grace is seen in the depth to which it reaches. The greatness of God's grace is seen in the depth to which it reaches. 
when I was in a boy for when I was a boy for a short stint. I was in the Cub Scouts, and I remember in Cub Scouts on this camping trip, learning that um, on a very dark night, when you're out on a lake, um, no lights around, that that you can see the the flash of of a match being lit from a mile away, against a very dark background. You can see even the smallest pinprick of light. Well, we're going to see in the book of Judges that often this book is a very dark backdrop. But in the middle of that, we're going to see God's love, not a small pinprick from a mile away, but blazing out in this book. As we're going to see time and again that the depth of God's grace, the greatness of God's grace, is seen in the depths to which it reaches. Now, to speak of God's grace is simply to speak of God's love and is pursuing people who don't deserve that love. It's another way of saying that God loves his people in spite of themselves. So we're going to start the study of the book of Judges here in chapter 2. And we're going to look this morning um, at God's love for his people. It's going to be where we're going to start. It's the foundation for everything that happens in the book of Judges. And we're going to talk about just two things that this passage teaches this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about the who and the why of God's love. Whom does God love? Why does God love? Those are the two questions we're going to look at. Uh, So first, we're going to take a look at the who question. What do we see about the people whom God loves here in the book of Judges? And if you think about it, that question is one of the most important questions you're ever going to ask. If If God is real, and if God is personal, if God is not just some force, if he's not just some reality in the background of the universe, but if he's actually a person... If he actually interacts with us, if he actually reaches out to us, if God is really a person, then the question of whom does God love becomes vitally important to us. Who is it that God loves? How do we connect with that love? Who can know him? Well, we're going to see in this passage and throughout Judges and the whole Bible simply this, that God loves the unlovely. That's who qualifies. God loves the unlovely. Look at what we read here about God's own people. This is, as I said, Judges comes in the flow of a story. And back in the book of Exodus, we see God's people enslaved in Egypt. And what does God do? He raises up Moses as a leader, and he delivers his people out of Egypt. He takes them out of slavery. He divides the Red Sea. He conquers Pharaoh's army. He leads them through the desert, and he brings them to this land that he has promised them. The book of of Joshua, which is immediately before Judges, tells about the people of Israel coming into the land and receiving everything that God had promised them. Now, here's the thing, though. In the first chapter of Judges, we see that as they have come into the land, won some major battles, that they then begin to turn away from following the Lord. He tells them to come and utterly displace the people who live there. And instead... Um, they begin to make agreements with those people. They begin to settle in with those people. They begin to become neighbors with those people. And they stop short in their efforts to actually obey what God's called them to. So that's where our passage picks up, beginning in chapter 2. God sends this angel, a messenger, to come to them and to confront them about what they've been doing. Look again at verses 1 through 5. angel of the Lord comes and he says, I brought you up out of Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You have not obeyed my voice. What have you done? You have not obeyed my voice. What have you done? See, God confronts them 
for their sin. And in those first five verses, it looks like they start to turn around, right? They begin to weep. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. And it seems like maybe they're responding appropriately. But notice how short-lived their repentance is. Goes on into the next section, verse 6 and following. It talks about the death of Joshua. And it says, as soon as Joshua died, and as soon as his generation died, the next generation doesn't serve the Lord. They don't know him. Verse 10 says, they don't know the Lord. They don't know the work that he had done for Israel. And that's sort of an interesting comment. It seems unlikely to me that this means they never heard about God. I mean, you have trouble imagining this generation that sees all the miraculous works of God who come into the land then one day sort of saying to their kids, oh, do we forget to tell you about this? Do we forget to tell you about the God who miraculously delivered us, who divided the Red Sea, who spoke to us from Mount Sinai, who revealed himself to us, who brought us into the land? Do we forget to tell you about that? Of course they didn't. Notice more uh, carefully, though, what it says. It doesn't say they didn't know about the Lord. Verse 10 says they didn't know the Lord. The verb for know in Hebrew can refer to the most intimate of relationships, the closest of knowing. See, this next generation that comes in, it's not that they didn't know the facts about God, but they didn't know Him. Not that they never heard about Him, but they don't embrace Him. They don't live in light of His love. And look what happens. Verse 11 through 19, we start to see this cycle that's going to become the basic framework for the whole book of Judges. Uh, The people are rebelling. They're not following God. God sends oppression to bring them back, to shake them back into their senses. God raises up these judges, these saviors, these deliverers for them to rescue them. And then as soon as the judge dies, they fall back into um, the same sins that they'd been a part of. Now, this question about God's anger is one we're going to look at in two more weeks. Okay? God gets angry with his people. He sends oppression in order to call them back. Um, But for now, um, I just want us to see a couple things. First, our eyes are in danger of sort of glazing over. Right? We read this passage and we think, okay, Baal, (laughs) Ashtoreth, fertility gods of the ancient Near East. It doesn't really feel a whole lot like um, Williamsburg in in, uh, 2006. It feels uh, distant, feels remote. Maybe it doesn't feel much like our own world. Um, because the core issue here for them is idolatry. And again, that's gonna one, one that we're going to get into more as we go through this series. But for just a moment, I want you to see this one thing. I want you to feel the emotional weight of what's going on here. What's happening? It's betrayal. God brings his people into this incredibly intimate and privileged relationship with himself. And just imagine that. The God who created the world, God who's holy and majestic, what does he do? He stoops down to pay attention to this one small tribe of people off in a corner of the world, and he chooses to to give them his love, to give them access to himself, to be in relationship with them. And what do they do? They turn their backs on him. They betray him. He uses harsh words in this passage. They prostitute themselves to foreign gods. You know what it's like to be rejected. Now, it's one thing to sort of be rejected or uh, to get the cold shoulder from people at work, from coworkers, kids at school, or your neighbors down the street. It's another thing, though, when that betrayal comes from, say, someone within your own family or maybe a spouse. Because, you see, uh, the depth of relationship that we have determines 
the depth of betrayal that we're exposed to, right? The more intimate the relationship, the more damaging and dangerous and hurtful is the betrayal. And God has brought them into the closest of relationships. And what do they do? They turn their backs on him. They betray him. And they walk away again and again and again. So back to the original point, that God loves the unlovely. And I think what's amazing about this passage and the whole book of Judges, and the whole Bible, is not that God gets angry, but that God is so patient with them. And that he continues to pursue them. And he continues to love them. And he doesn't give up on them. Because you see, God loves the unlovely. We read this passage and the rest of Judges, and it's really easy to think, good grief, uh, these people really didn't deserve God's love. These guys really were messed up. They really were people who deserve God's wrath and not his love. And you're right. But here's the thing. And it's one of the points for us this morning. We are no different. We are no different than the people in Judges. We are also unlovely too. These people have received so much from God. And they so quickly turn their backs on Him. And so do we. These people are given reassurances time and again of God's love for them, God's provision for them. And they so quickly begin to question His love. And so do we. Here they are. God's chosen people, loved by God Himself. And they worry more about gaining political power, pursuing their pleasures, fitting in with their neighbors, than they do about honoring and pleasing God. And so do we. Now, this is a little offensive to us, isn't it? To face up to the fact that in God's eyes, that we too are people who are unlovely. To face up to the idea that we are people who are just as bad off as the people in the book of Judges. Because we so passionately want the world around us to think that we're good. You want your uh, co-workers, you want your family, you want your friends, and maybe even God, you want to convince them that you have it all together. That your life is orderly and decent and admirable. That you are, in fact, beautiful, however you might be defining beauty in your own life. And maybe for some of us, maybe it's your family pedigree that you'd point to. You come from a long line of good Christian people. Your family's never had any scandal, at least none that anyone ever found out about. Maybe, you, uh, maybe you've gone to church ever since you were a child. Maybe you even went to Sunday school, and you've done all the right things. Uh, or maybe it's your career that you'd point to. You spent years working hard and doing well, earning the respect of other people. And now you're able to retire well. When people ask you what your work was, you can smile humbly and say, Oh, well, since you asked, let me tell you. But when you're honest with yourself, and I think this holds true, whether you are a Christian or someone who's not a Christian, you know that the image that you're trying to project to the world around you is largely smoke and mirrors. Because you know that you can't even live up to your own standard of goodness. If you don't believe me, think back to the last time that you had out-of-town family coming to visit, as I do this weekend. Now, don't worry, I'm not about to talk about my family's failings. Uh, Instead, I'm going to talk about mine. Doesn't it seem like, of all the people in the world, that we should be able to love our family well and consistently? I mean, after all, they're the people that God has put closest to us. They're the people we actually want to love well. Doesn't it seem like 
at the very least, that we could pull that off. But what happens? And I'm not talking about when you're angry or irritable or resentful. But what happens when you're really trying to, to love your family well as you want to? What happens? You still fail, and I still fail. We still fall on our face. We still get impatient. Our stubbornness still blazes through. Last night, uh, I was tired. I still had a sermon to finish. And I had an errand that needed to get done. And my family really tried to help me, to serve me, to help me get it all done. And I wouldn't listen. And my sister, with no rancor in her voice, simply said, well, Brandon just has to do it his own way. And I thought, ah, there it is again. The stubbornness, the distance, the relational walls, even when I'm trying to be good. I put them up even when I'm trying to be good. You see, the quickest way to get a good look at your own unloveliness isn't to take a look at yourself when you're being bad, but it's to take an honest look at yourself even when you're trying your very best to be good. But, but, it's not where the passage leaves us. It's not only potentially offensive to say that we're just as desperate, just as unlovely as the people in the book of Judges. It's also good news for us. And it's good news for two reasons. Uh, one, first, because it's the truth. You know it in your moments of clarity. And God knows it all the time. And sooner or later, it just becomes too exhausting to try to keep up the lie that you have it all together and that you're good. Now, secondly, this is good news because God loves the unlovely. And when you know that you're unlovely, you know that you qualify. It's exactly what Jesus said as well. Luke chapter 5, Jesus has been spending time with all the wrong sorts of people. At least that's what the religious professionals said when they came up to confront Jesus. They thought, you know, if Jesus were really with God, he'd be spending time with us, the good people. And here's what Jesus said to them. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called to, come si- to call sinners to repentance. Later on in the book of Luke, Jesus says this about himself. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so it is good news because it means that our unloveliness, our failure, our fractured relationship with God is not the end of the story. Who can receive God's love? The unlovely. But here's the thing. That means that as long as you are clinging to your own beauty, your own achievement, your own worth, you will miss Jesus. Which, of course, is the same thing as saying that if you cling to anything but Jesus, you're going to miss God. Now, it brings us to our second point. We're going to look at this much more briefly. But our second question is this. Who do, whom does God love? He loves the unlovely. But why does God love? Why does God love the unlovely? Why does he love these people and judges who turn away from him time and time again? Why does he continue to love us, a people who are often just as unfaithful? God makes a foolish investment. I mean, think about this in any other area of your own life. Let's say you're putting away money for retirement. You don't look at the available options for stocks and think, which of these companies is on its way down irrevocably? Not just the one that's going to like gain me some money in the end, but which one's really going to crash? Which one is the one where if I put my money in this, I could really lose it all? 
Or let's say you're of an age that you start to think of getting married. You don't think, I am going to go find the least beautiful person I can find. The person who it just, it feels like nails on the, you know, nails on the chalkboard just to be around that person. This is who I want to spend my life with. I'm going to find the person who is most likely to walk out on me, most likely to break my heart, most likely to bring misery into my life. Nobody does that. But God makes, in this sense, a poor investment. He comes and he loves the unlovely. And the question is, why? Look back at verse 1. I think this gives something of the answer. Is the angel of the Lord comes to read his um, charge against God's people. He says, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Why does God love the unlovely? The Bible tells us he does it because he chooses to. God, who is a trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who exists in perfect relationship with himself, perfect contentment, perfect joy, not needing anything. God chooses to create, and he chooses to pour his love on people that walk away from him. Why? Not because he needs something from them. He has everything he needs. He simply chooses to love He decides to choose to, to take to himself a people of his own, even though they so obviously don't deserve it. The people of judges don't, and we don't. Here's the thing. He doesn't do it on a whim, either. Look at the words that it uses in these first couple of verses. The land that I swore to give your fathers. He goes on, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. A covenant is a binding relationship that God freely enters into for our own good. He binds himself to his people. He promises to love his people. Why does God love the unlovely? Because he wanted to, and he chooses to, and he binds himself to us. Now, um, this is enough to confound both secular people and religious people. Because secular people would say, if God exists, then he must love everyone. doesn't matter what you believe or what you do or who you are. Now, on the other hand, a religious person says this, no, God doesn't love everyone. He loves the people who are good, who worship the right way, who are moral, who do the right things to please him, who go to church. But you see, both the secular person and the religious person are both wrong. The secular person is wrong because God isn't obligated to love anyone. He had all that he needed. He's not obligated to love the people that he creates. He didn't need to bring us into existence to make his own joy, his own love complete. And he certainly is not obligated to love a world that has so blatantly turned its back on him. But the religious person's wrong as well. Because a religious person so overestimates his own ability to be good, his own ability to make himself beautiful. The religious person thinks that one day they really are just going to get it right. One day they're going to figure this thing out. But you see, you can't. Now, the Christian answer is different than both. The Christian answer is that God isn't obligated to love, but rather he chooses to love. And he doesn't love those who think they are beautiful, those who think they can get it all together, those who think they can finally make their lives work, but rather God chooses to love those who are unlovely. 
And you see right here in the middle of our passage, verse 18, is a signpost that sort of points ahead for this whole series in Judges, and really for the whole Old Testament. Look at verse 18. What happens when God's people fall into their rebellion and their apostasy and their sin again and again? It says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than ever. You see, what does God do for his unlovely people? He sends them, these judges, to deliver them to rescue them, to save them. But you see, it's never enough. Throughout the book of Judges, again and again, but it never seems to stick. Their rescue is never quite complete. The judge dies. The people fall back into it again. What do they need? Well, they need what the judges pointed ahead to. They need a better judge, a better deliverer, a better savior. One whose deliverance is not bound by death. One who could take their unloveliness and do something about it. One who could, in fact, be beautiful for them. See, in every story in the book of Judges, we're going to be brought again and again right up to the edge of this. God rescuing his people again and again, but always knowing that it's just not enough. It doesn't take them far enough because we always know that they need something more. We need someone more. In fact, we need Jesus. And every act of salvation in the book of Judges points ahead to the greater salvation that Jesus brings his people. The one that's full, the one that's final, the one that is not ended by death. Jesus, God's own son, choosing to love an unlovely people, bringing us what we couldn't achieve ourselves, a new life, a restored relationship with God, a true and deep beauty. But here's the thing. It's not one that we achieve. It's not one that we earn. A true and deep beauty. But one uh, that is a gift. Jesus laying aside his glory, taking on our shame. Jesus stepping out of heaven and into the muck and mire and suffering of our own world. Jesus who had no sin, no failing, no dirt of his own, no relational break with the Father. Taking on our grime, our sin, our penalty, our fractured relationship with God. You see, Jesus, the beautiful one, Becoming unlovely for us so that we, the unlovely ones, might become beautiful ourselves with the beauty of Jesus himself. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Judges is all about. As dark as it gets, we're going to see that time and again that the greatness of God's grace is seen in the depths to which it reaches. And it begins right here with God loving the unlovely. Let's pray. Father, it is hard often to face up to the truth because we run from it. Let us not run from the truth that left to ourselves. We, in fact, are unlovely people. But let us run to the further truth that you are the one who makes us lovely in Jesus. You are the one who bestows on us the righteousness that we can't scrape together for ourselves. Father, you say hard things about us, but you promise us the most glorious of things, the hope of the gospel, that it is Jesus who rescues us. Father, we pray that you would make this even more real to us, even this summer, as we open up your word to us in the book of Judges. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing.